Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The IRS has reached a big milestone as its staffing levels near the six-digit mark, more than 100,000 people. Now agency leaders are looking ahead to even more hiring over the next few years. It all comes after the IRS got that $60 billion from the Inflation Reduction Act a couple of years ago, meant to help boost the workforce and customer service. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got more from IRS Human Capital Officer Tracy Demartini. After 10 years of really being underfunded and not able to keep up with our demands on the staffing side, we have this tremendous opportunity to replenish our workforce um, with amazing talent. And already in my short time here under Commissioner Werfel's leadership, we have surpassed the 90,000 mark with employees that are on board. We hit that at the end of fiscal year 2023. And we really look forward to doing much more hiring uh, in the next two to three years. The area we are most in need of attracting talent is accountants. Drew, if you know where all the accountants are hiding across the United States, I want all of them. Um, They serve such an incredible purpose as revenue agents, really helping taxpayers understand the tax code and making sure that they're able to get their questions answered. The other thing that is so phenomenal about the IRS is we are nationwide. We have opportunities um, all across the country for anyone that wants to enter the civil service and particularly enter the IRS. Maybe if we can talk a little bit more about the recruitment strategies that you have whether it's for accountants or other areas where you're trying to attract talent, are there different ways that you're trying to reach those sectors of the workforce uh, or just bring their attention to the opportunities that are available at IRS? We really are fortunate that we have such a diverse workforce and many of our employees at the IRS have been with the commission for many years. So they have established relationships with partners in the private sector um, or at the state and local level. So people are aware of our mission and the great work that we do. We try and capitalize on that to attract um, more people to come into the, the IRS. We're also doubling that with great strategies and all of the hiring flexibilities we have to staff up as quickly as possible. So one area that we're really going to lean into in 2024 is hiring entry-level talent in all disciplines. We're utilizing the Pathways program, which, of course, is a great pipeline for early career talent, people that are just graduating college, and the Presidential Management Fellows program. We're also really leaning into continuing hiring veterans. Um, As you know, Drew, that's a passion of mine. We are interested in hiring military spouses, which is a big initiative of the First Lady, and, of course, individuals that can come in under special authorities such as Schedule A. We really just want people that want to serve. I think when people see the great work the IRS does, it gets them excited. Um, We, of course, are part of the Treasury Department. And once people come in, they tend to want to stay. We have very low attrition. Um, We do have a a large population of the workforce is eligible to retire in the next few years. But we have found through our data that when people come and work for the IRS, they tend to stay and make it a career. What is it about the IRS that, you know, drives such good retention? Are there, you know, are there certain factors that you think are contributing to that? Absolutely. I think just like every agency in the federal service, it's about mission. Um, You know, the mission of the IRS is one that is sacred. We are the agency that helps fund 
all, all, all of America. You know, we are responsible for collecting uh, the taxes and administer, administering the tax program across the United States. And we're really also an agency committed to customer service. Another driver that I think is really helping us now, and it's one of the reasons why I joined the IRS, is we have a commissioner that knows about public service. Commissioner Werfel started his career at Office of Management and Budget. He is a very proud public servant, and he is very much a passionate advocate for the civil service. And I think the employees can feel that, and they really believe in it. And they know now we have the opportunity to transform the IRS in a way that it hasn't been done for, for so long because we've been so starved of resources. So I really think that's a driving factor for our current workforce is they can sense the excitement and this is truly a time of transformational change. I do want to talk a little bit more about recruitment before we continue talking about retention. So on the recruitment end of things, you mentioned that there's availability uh, for positions all across the U.S. Are there also Mm -hmm. flexibilities such as um, telework and remote work? I know that, for example, you mentioned military spouses being one area that you're targeting, early career talent. Those are groups that often prefer telework opportunities or remote work opportunities. Is that something that's available at IRS, or are you looking at ways to uh, expand those? Our motto in the Human Capital Office is we're going to use every tool that is available to us. Um, We have the tremendous backing from the Treasury Department and from the Office of Personnel Management to make sure that we have all of the hiring flexibilities we need. So one um, important recruiting pathway that I didn't mention was our expanded direct hire, which means we now have the ability, particularly for our revenue agents, to hire them on the spot. So we have been doing a ton of on-the-ground recruitment fairs. Um, I just was in Puerto Rico last month and was so excited to see so many young people coming out of the universities with accounting degrees that wanted to join the federal service. We're trying to do that all across the United States. We're also blending it with a very solid social media strategy. We have a great comms department at the IRS, and we're really leveraging our social media strategists to find ways to um, talk about why the IRS is a wonderful place to work and trying to meet people where they're at, whether it be on LinkedIn or Instagram, Facebook. We have a great YouTube channel. And just trying to make sure people understand exactly what we do. It's really um, one of those agencies where until you go and work there, you don't have a true appreciation of how large the scope is and really how customer-focused we are. Um, We do a lot on the ground in our tax assistance centers, and I've had the opportunity to travel to a few of those. And it's really, it shows why this IRA money is so important, because when you have fully staffed offices, American taxpayers and citizens can get the services they deserve. So that's what we want to continue to do into 2024 and 25. And with regard to flexibilities, we are a very telework-friendly agency, and we have a remote work pilot, but we also have the ability to offer incentives. So we're doing recruitment incentives for new accountants. We're also doing a lot of student loan repayments as part of our retention strategies. Just alone in FY 2023, Drew, we paid out over $50 million in student loan repayment. And in 2024, we're looking forward to adding um, tuition assistance programs so our current workforce can choose to go back to school and um, further their career path while still working with the IRS. 
And Tracy, I know that you also um, personally are pretty new to your position at the IRS. Are there things from, I know, and obviously I know that you were at GSA before that as their chief human capital officer. Um, Are there things that you are bringing to your relatively new position uh, that either worked well at GSA or things that you are, have learned from that previous role that you're kind of bridging over, bringing to uh, these efforts that you're, you have underway now at IRS? Yes, absolutely. So first, it's such a, a tremendous privilege to be at an agency that has resources that and a mandate to really invest in the workforce. So that's exciting as a human capital officer. Um, I'm really trying to focus on developing the HR staff at the IRS so we can continue to deliver services and become the best HR shop in all of the federal service, which is something I strive to do no matter where what office I'm leading. I was proud to do it at GSA and at Peace Corps and at EEOC, and I am confident we are going to do the same thing at the IRS. Um, we're also going to be laser-focused on employee engagement this year. Again, after so many years of not having enough money to properly staff offices or really invest in basic work uh, needs such as good information technology or supplies, we have the opportunity to reinvest all across the service. And I think what that's going to translate to is stronger employee engagement and a stronger sense of pride. So I think you know, Drew, I'm a huge fan of the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. And last year, the IRS had roughly a 35% participation rate. I'm really hoping we can double that in 2024 and help take the IRS and the Department of Treasury to the top of the best places to work rankings. I want to talk a little bit more about employee engagement and those goals as well. But I did have one more question for you about um, recruitment. And on that end of things, I know that some of your work in the past has involved for example, um, using subject matter experts in the hiring process. Is that something you're looking at or thinking about as you're trying to hire, uh, for example, accountants at IRS? And, you know, how important is that uh, subject matter expert approach to to Mm -hmm. recruitment at IRS? That is a great question. And um, I'm going to give you a resounding yes. We cannot meet these hiring goals without our partners on the business side of the house. So, for example, with our auditors and revenue agents, we are very closely aligned with our ex- the business experts um, that actually do the work because, honestly, that's the best way we can recruit is having people that actually do the jobs sit at the table by our side to explain what the job entails, um, just how diverse and interesting the work is. We have a lot of employees at the IRS that have come in from the private sector, from, say, large accounting firms or maybe from state and local government, and they're our best um, recruiters because they can really talk to why a career at the IRS was the best decision they ever made. They also do help us evaluate the technical skills of our applicants and make sure that we're getting individuals that not only have a passion to enter the civil service, but have the technical skills that we need to have a top-notch auditing team in the IRS. Right. And I know that you and many of your colleagues, I've I've heard you say many times over that that kind of approach to recruitment also helps with retention as well, right? If you have the right person in the door, someone with the right qualifications in the first place, that often means that they're going to be more likely to stay um, at the IRS. So do you see that as an important tool for retention as well? It absolutely is important, but I really think the best predictor we have of an employee being successful 
is do they want to serve in the federal government? Um, because I often have had candid discussions with other Chicos across the government. We know that the federal service is behind on uh, pay parity compared to our private sector colleagues. But what we will always win on is mission and finding the right workforce that wants to come in and serve and engage in public service, whether they be veterans that are transitioning from military service into civil service, or individuals that are switching careers, um, maybe midstream in their 40s or 50s and are looking for a new opportunity and decide that now is the time to engage in giving back and serving in the federal government. Um, that is really our best predictor of how someone is going to perform and how successful they will be because Serving in a federal role is not for the faint of heart. We often are, you know, we often are uh, not well-funded or we often have challenges that you don't see in the private sector. But the reason why people come and they stay is because the work is so interesting and so complex. Just yesterday, I was talking to a few revenue agents that are now part of our uh, senior career development program. And three of them had transferred into the IRS several years ago from big accounting firms. And they said the one thing that they loved about their jobs is the work is constantly changing and is different, and they're working on large complex problems that they would never have the chance to do in the private sector. So that's what we will be able to uh, best say to people that wanna come into the federal service. It's not always about money, it's about doing a job that matters and doing a job that has meaning. And Tracy, we, you talked a few minutes ago as well about the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVS, and the Employee Engagement Index in particular. And I, I like that you mentioned that you have a goal of increasing the response rate of IRS employees on the FEVS. My question is, how important is that data to you, and how do you use the results of FEVS to make changes or think about what is still needed for IRS's workforce? Again, I am a huge fan of the FEVs, and it is a useful tool when people in my position or other leaders in the agency actually take the time to dive in and understand what our workforce is saying. So that's the first thing I want to do is increase the response rate so we have a more representative um, sample of what the IRS employees are thinking. You know, 35% was still a little bit higher than what I think the overall federal average was. But with an agency of 90,000 people, I, I want to see at least 50%, if not doubling that rate in 2024. The second thing we have been doing is um, engaging in what we call virtual town halls. The commissioner himself has been going out to campuses, but also talking to employees um, using our Teams function or Zoom to hear directly from the workforce and to also share back what his vision is for helping to transform the IRS. And as the human capital officer, it's been a privilege to sit by him during these calls and hear firsthand from managers and employees, you know, what they are thinking and what they believe we need in order to transform the IRS. And of course, at an agency like the IRS, which has a very strong organized uh, labor component, we also are very serious about listening to our union partners. Doreen Greenwald was just elected president of NTEU. I consider her a good friend. I know the commissioner has a very good relationship with her. And listening to President Greenwald and all of our chapter presidents across the country also help us keep our pulse on what's happening on the ground and what employees are thinking and feeling. 
Can you give an example or two of some of the things that employees are voicing or, or maybe the things that you hear most commonly from employees in terms of what either what's working well or what they're looking for in terms of improvements in their, I guess, work life? So I think there are two major areas I would talk about, and they're ones that we're actively working on at the IRS. The first we've already discussed, it's really about getting in here and staffing up because for so long the IRS did not have the financial means in order to backfill key positions and to grow our workforce. That is what we are laser focused on right now because this incredible workforce that has been with us for many years during very lean times, they need help. And I want to tell them, you know, reinforcements are coming. The second is in core information technology needs. And I know you and I have talked before about the importance of having great technology fuel good HR departments. Well, the same is true all across any large um, department. And again, with this infusion of the IRA funds, we're going to be able to become a more efficient, more technology, uh, technologically savvy department and really finally update systems that have been woefully neglected due to lack of funding and really be able to help give our workforce the tools that they need to do their jobs the best way they can on behalf of the American public. So specifically in HR, I know we're trying to deploy tools, um, you know, such as revamping the way we use USA staffing to make sure we can get the recruitment processes done and make job offers uh, quicker. We're trying to invest in the ability to do texting with our applicants because we know the next generation of the workforce, they may not be as reliant on email. They want to hear from employers via text. So we're partnering with the Department of Treasury and OPM to find ways to add that capability to USA staffing and really just to increase our system so they all talk to each other and we can have better data flows and better information about the workforce um, at hand. I think we've kind of touched on this in our conversation a little bit so far, but I just want to ask a little bit more directly um, about the role of diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the way that you hire and retain employees. Is that something that you are thinking about as you're kind of going out and um, trying to recruit different populations to these roles? And how are you how are you trying to address that? Oh, my gosh, absolutely. That is central to any um, HR department in the federal civil service because it is part of our merit systems principles. We not only want to bring in people that are best suited for the jobs, but they have to and should represent um, the American population. So some of the things that we're doing is really spreading out our recruitment efforts across the entire United States, Get not just in urban areas, but going into more rural areas where people want federal jobs and can certainly um, bring a lot of talent to our workforce. We're also spending more time in Puerto Rico where we have set up some call centers because we do have a large bilingual call center base to help um, individuals where English may not be their first language, but they still are paying taxes and have questions. And we're making sure that we're also attracting talent at every age and with every ability. I mean, um, when I think about the great work that's being done at the IRS, it truly is um, a great success story for federal service in general, because right now we have such a large mandate to hire that we have the opportunity to welcome people from all walks of life with all types of experience. And I'd be remiss if I didn't really talk about one of the things I'm passionate about when it comes to diversity. It's about diversity of experience and age too. So I not only wanna welcome 
a lot of people that are just starting their careers and maybe graduating college, but I do want to also welcome people that are new to federal service, maybe doing a transitional career. Maybe they're a military spouse that had to leave a former job because their spouse was deployed. We want everyone that wants to serve to consider joining the IRS. I would love to have this conversation with you a year from now, again, to check in on all of our successes. You know, we have such an ambitious set of mandates ahead of us, but it's also really exciting. I'm not scared at all, and I know that my colleagues at the IRS are excited to see what we can do with this opportunity. Um, I often tell my colleagues on the Chico Council, this is an example of for all federal agencies on how government can perform when it is fully funded and fully staffed. Tracy Demartini, the Human Capital Officer at the IRS, speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Check out Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me back because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.